their way to cope through what's really hard and uncontrollable. Dr. Christine, you're spot on. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And now, coming to you from the K2 Studios in San Diego, California, it's the world-famous Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening, everybody? Hey, how you doing out there today? Thank you for listening, and I am Chris. And I'm Christine, and welcome to episode 74 of the Chris and Christine Show. Do-do-do-do! Good old fantastic, the 74th episode Dun, 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 number 74. You know, it's funny. I remember a while ago when the Academy Awards came out and they had the big 74th, um, you know, talking about the 74th. Yeah, like the 74th. Uh, when they do like the, this is the 75th annual. Da, 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 da. What yeah. are they up to now? Was it 74 or 75? I don't know. I don't keep track, honey. Uh, yeah, I don't either. I don't either. You know, it's funny. This year uh, being, the, well, sorry, not this year, but last year, 2020, with the movies, like, like what movies are even out because of the whole theaters are closed and movies are pushing back their release dates so far. Like I don't even know this year when they do the Academy Awards like next month. I think it's next month when they do them. Yeah. Um, what's it going to be like? I don't know. So I was watching a commercial when we went yesterday to the place we went, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And it was like a, a movie trailer for an upcoming movie. And it said in theaters and HBO Max. And I was thinking... In what theaters? Like home theaters? I don't know. No, you know, I think there are some theaters that are actually are open across the country. Oh, other states? Yes, other states. And I do think the drive-ins are open because I did drive by a drive-in and it was actually open showing movies. Oh, I thought that they were closed. Well, you think about it. The drive-in, you are actually contained in your own car and it all plays through your car stereo now. So they don't have your windows open or anything like that. So you're, everybody's isolated. So a drive-in is probably the most ideal, safe quarantine place you could be in, other yeah. than your own home, of course. Absolutely. Well, uh, enough about that, Chris. How has your week been going? It's been doing great. You know, at work, I just passed my 10-year anniversary Woo-hoo! for my company. So they had a little party for me, got me some Mexican food, and got me a little brochure and a little plaque that says my name, and, and congratulations on 10 years of service and all that fun stuff. But what's in the brochure? The brochure is like a little catalog, a gift catalog is what Ooh. it is. It's almost like, it's not very big. It's got like, what, five pages of, of things to pick from? But there's like 10 or 20 items yeah, on there's spread. There's like jewelry, watches, some camping gear. I think there was a crock pot, some cooked... Uh, Pots and pans. Well, I already picked out the Tiffany ring that you can get me. Oh, that too. <laughs> you know, I think it was a purse in there too. It was a Michael Kors wristlet, which is like not very much. But oh, well, I don't know what this stuff is. Um, so are you going to use your uh, special milestone to buy me something? You know, it's funny. Another co- <laughs> another coworker said that very same thing. They said, "Hey, are you going to buy your girl something?" I said, "Whose anniversary was it? Hers or mine? No, it's my anniversary. It's my gift." Well, I know you're always after a deal, and Valentine's Day is coming, so there you go. Oh. <laughs> Yes, maybe I'll just sign my name. I'll cross my name off the catalog and put Christine on there and <laughs> give like, it to you. Here, babe, pick whatever you want. I, anything you want. It's all yours, babe. Marathon says we're supporting spouses. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so how's, uh, how's your work uh, week been? Well, my week has been super busy, like super, super busy. I barely came up for air and uh, I've been doing my dissertation interviews for my data collection which is like a huge milestone. And I had so many of them this past week. And thankfully, my supervisor is allowing me to flex my hours. So a lot of the people that I was interviewing only wanted to interview during their work day. 
And so what Why? that means... Why is that? So they get paid for it? No, because of the technology. Like if they're working in the office or working remotely, that it just makes it easier because so many people are working like from their houses, but then they have kids all around. And so what that meant is, thankfully, I'm so grateful for this. My supervisor is allowing me to still get in my sufficient hours so I don't have to take any personal time, but I'm able to, like, I have to work earlier and later to kind of make up for the hours. So my past week, I've been starting work around 6.30 and then working until around 10.30 because I've had to take at times like a two-hour or a three-hour break to be able to do the interviews. And so it's been a lot, but the exciting thing is... What's I'm, exciting about it, babe? I am done with all but one. I have one this coming week, which means I am hugely on the way. Like, this is the downhill slope to graduation. I'm on the 99-day countdown as of today, and it's just such a great feeling. Well, that is fantastic. But hey, with these interviews, I got a big question. Are yeah. we allowed to hear any of those interviews on the podcast? You are not. So what? Why when, not? When it comes to interviewing people for a research study... Um, there's all of these special procedures that you have to go through to maintain anonymity for everybody. And so um, once I record the interview, I send it to be transcribed. Once I get the transcription back, it's like a Word document. I have to go through and I have to scrub out all of their names, any references to cities, school districts, or other people that are named. Uh, have to spend a lot of time doing that because what could happen uh, which I I hope I hope that it wouldn't. But when it comes to interviews like this and their confidential sources, technically, if I was to reveal who they are, or if somebody was able to figure out who they are, and they say something negative about their current organization, retaliation could occur. It could be the difference between completely losing a career. If you think about Wait, it, your career, their career, theirs. And then I would be held liable as the researcher, and so would my university. Well, why don't you just ask the people, hey? Hey, anything you can say may go against you. So speak clearly. No, you know, but like don't don't but, say anything that might get you in trouble. No, but that's the thing is because it's a research study. I'm really trying to uncover what the gaps are. If people feel like they have to filter themselves, then they're not going to be very honest. But when you tell a person, um, we're going to give you a pseudonym, a fake name, and a fake district name, and we'll even adjust your title description a bit so that it doesn't come back to you. Then people feel that they can speak freely because the whole point of my research study is to try and uncover what is really at the root of Latinas not being superintendents. And so uh, needless to say, they were amazing, amazing individuals that I interviewed. Well, that's great. As long as as it went off really uh, smoothly. It it did. And I learned so much and I learned a lot about myself. But it was, you know, I, I look at the interview process and like I was using my podcasting headphones and even just the way that I was able to engage with the interviews, I feel like I learned so much by how much we do interviews on our podcast. Right. You know, I was thinking about that too. You say you can do interviews. I was like, well, you're already a pro at it. So <laughs> you got so much experience doing it. So it should be just a breeze. Now, when you did the interviews, is it like when they do those Dateline NBC shows when they have the guy covered up? He's like in the shadow in the back <laughs> with that, hey, my name is Jill, and I'm going to tell you my story. <laughs> No, I'm able to see the individual, but nobody else can view that. Um, So even when I send the transcription forward, it has to be audio only. 
And then as soon as the transcripts come through and I'm able to save them, I have to delete the video and the audio so that it doesn't go back to that person. And it's all done through Zoom, right? Right. How has Zoom been working out for you for these things? It's been working out great. So the nice thing is because I go through the university, there's extra security measures that are in place. So it's encrypted. And so right. like, you can't get Zoom bombers as easily. How does it even work? How do people get Zoom bombed? Well, they could just like type in random numbers to a meeting ID number because Zoom has meeting ID numbers associated with it. And so people would figure out how to run those and hack in. But um, mine were, the links were protected. And so the password was embedded into the link. So you had to have the link to get in. And then I had to admit the person into, because they go into a waiting room at first. And so um, a lot of security measures are put in place. And I think that lots of times people don't think of that when they read research studies is like, all of the different measures that had to go in place. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, but it's a great training opportunity for me as I've been doing more writing. And so, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it this week. I just was home and, um, you know, Zeke's here this weekend. Right. So So we got to take him out yesterday. Yeah, last night we took him to uh, K1 Speed. Yeah. Because he wasn't here last weekend. I took the other two kids to K1 Speed on last Sunday. Right. It was Sunday or Saturday? It was Sunday while I was doing schoolwork. And then, so this, uh, so yesterday was Saturday. So Saturday night, we took Ezekiel down there and it was so busy. I can't believe how busy that place has been. Yeah, it was a two hour wait just to get him to be able to race. And then he did three races. So we got there at 445 and we finally walked out of K1 at 915. Wow. And the funny thing is because they normally have other activities for people to do. Like they've got an arcade and a pool hall for pool tables. But because of COVID, all that shut down. In fact, their little restaurant, I think that was shut down too. Like all they had was like, like drinks. You could, you know, like, yeah, water bottles and coke and people ordered in they like got some doordash food i saw some people have some like well, that's how you gotta do stuff it. delivered because they were doing a little birthday party but uh zeke had a lot of fun except for one unfortunate incident and what was that that happened the crash yeah well he had multiple crashes but he had one crash where he actually the cart he was driving got totaled they had to remove it from the track somebody smashed into him or he smashed and, into somebody and they, like hopped up onto his it was so messy and then the front end of his car got ripped off his go-kart. So they actually had to replace his cart with a new fresh one out of the back. And, yeah. Um, and the difference was he was actually racing with the adults this time. And I found that they were a lot more aggressive. Oh, they are. And the cars are so much faster. The cars are very, very fast. They're like 40, over 40 miles an hour. You think 40 miles an hour doesn't sound so bad. But imagine being on this tiny little one-person little, little go-kart going 40 miles an hour around a little course. With other people in the same lane as you trying to get around you and you know trying to nudge you around you it was literally like watching ford versus ferrari but like demolition derby edition and then it was like i don't know it was it was crazy and my mama heart was freaking oh, out oh gosh you seen christine she was freaking when the crash happened when zeke crashed in the other car christine's like she clenched her pearls and was like oh no what happened my baby Yeah, no, it was super scary. Unfortunately, he came out without any injuries. He's a little bit sore today, but... um, Oh, yeah, you get sore. Yeah, I'm not... We're not doing that again. Well, you know, I told Christine yesterday, I said, hey, babe, you want to try that? What did you say? Heck no, over my dead body. You do feel very sore. When I used to do it a lot, I mean, the next week, week long, I would feel so sore after doing the K1 speed. I did not race. I just didn't seek race. Was it because of the K1 speed or because you were old trying to fit into those little tiny go-karts? Well, (laughs) there were some old guys doing it. There was an old lady doing it, I saw. But the old lady was so funny. She was driving around the track like super, super... Super slow. Like so, like almost dangerous 
dangerously slow because if you're going on the track that slow, people are flying at full throttle. They come around a corner. They're going to plow right into you. And that right. happens. Yeah. You that's know. kind of what happened to Zeke because he slowed slowed down a bit to take a curve so he didn't bump into the side. And then he bumped into the side. And then this other guy who had been trailing him uh, cut that corner a little bit too close and ended up T-boning him and jumping up over his go-kart a bit. And we're just so thankful that he's safe. But uh, yeah, it's definitely been an interesting week. Right, Chris? Absolutely. And this week, we have a very special guest coming up next who happens to be a doctor. Yes, Doctor is in the house, and we are going to have him coming up right after this. Hey there, K2 crew. We love having you as our loyal listeners. To keep up to date with what's happening behind the scenes, check us out on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Yeah, tag us in your favorite fun stories, and guess what? You might just end up on the show. With a new year brings a new beginning. For all our listeners that own a business, I want to tell you about FedEx Office. If you are just starting or have been running your company for generations, FedEx Office gives you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, and so much more. With FedEx creating, editing, saving, and ordering are fast and easy. We are teaming up with FedEx and Podgo to bring... Our listeners, 30% off your next order of $100 or more at podgo.co slash FedEx. That's podgo.co slash FedEx for 30% off your next order. FedEx, the world on time. Hey, and welcome back, everybody. Our next guest is a renowned speaker, author, clinical psychologist, a social justice advocate. He tours the country and speaks with schools and corporations. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Adolph Brown. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dr. Brown. We're so excited for you to be here. I am very excited to be on your show today. Oh, thanks, Doc. Can I call you Doc? Is it okay? Yes, please. All right. Fantastic. We're excited to get to know you a bit more. But before we jump into what you do on a daily basis and what you're known for, can you uh, tell us where you're coming from in the country today? Sure. I'm coming from the East Coast of Virginia Beach, Virginia. Wow. Now, Virginia Beach. That's actually on the beach, right? I'm trying to remember my geography. Here I was a former geography <laughs> <Yes>. teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. You know, we have this place. I grew up in the uh, middle of California and we had a place called Reedley Beach, but it wasn't a beach. It was like on the riverbed. So I always clarify. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> so Virginia Beach, Virginia, what's the weather like for you today? Uh, it's in the 50s today. That's pretty cool for like a beach town, right? Yeah, it's... Uh... We, we prefer uh, 80s and up. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> well, what do you do there in Virginia Beach, Virginia? Well, uh, probably what's most important to me, I'm a husband. I'm a father of eight wonderful young adults. And when I'm not hanging out with my family, I tour the world pretty much talking about um, issues related to organizational behavior and personal improvement. So eight children, that is quite a feat. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And what are the age ranges of your children? 31 to 18. 
Wow. Okay, so they're all adults now. They're not, you know, got like little rugrats running around in diapers. <laughs> you know? Oh no, but but we do. We just uh, about a year ago, I became a fun pa. What? Okay, yes. is that your name for a grandpa instead of like papa or something? Well, well, you know, I, I wanted the traditional papa or grandpa, mm-hmm. uh, but my daughter and her husband decided that I'm I'm more I act like a fun pa. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that 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 is a cool title to have. I appreciate that. It's awesome. So have you lived in Virginia Beach your entire life? I have. Uh, I went to college uh, at the College of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, where Mm -hmm. I met my wife. Uh, She's from New York. And she was pretty cool to understand my definition of success, which was it's not necessarily when you take the elevator up to the top, but it's more important to come back down and get others and help them up. So she agreed after college that we could move back to my hometown, and we've settled here and made it home and have done some really good things in our community. That's wonderful. And so we read in your bio that you're a clinical psychologist. Do you have a a practice there in Virginia Beach? Yes, we do. We have a – it's actually a global consultation practice. So under that umbrella is everything from the consultation and speaking engagements to the coaching and the practice. Um, we also had had a wellness clinic. And we were using that term long before uh, anyone knew what it was, but we were using it. We actually had a gym facility, a 24-hour fitness facility with uh, internet cafes for parents and it was boxing ring, the whole nine, but it was needed in our community because there were many children and families that couldn't afford the actual gym memberships to some of the more well-known facilities. That sounds like a great asset to the community. Yeah. yeah it was a lot of fun and it brought people together um, and it kept a lot of people, particularly young people, on a, on a straight path. Yeah, I would bet. Does that... Uh... You know, kind of keep the drugs and alcohol out of it, kind of stuff, and get them and get them. Do you get? Do you deal with a lot of that type of stuff too? Oh, definitely. Um, e- everything that can interfere with with someone's daily uh, activities of living, I deal with. Did you, when you were growing up, did you always know you wanted to be a psychologist? No, not at all. I actually wanted to either be a professional baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I also was interested in football, but I, I like baseball better. And um, I have a grandfather or had a grandfather who was a farmer who didn't, didn't live too far away. And at a young age, got interested in boxing and became a pretty good boxer. When I kind of outgrew that, got into martial arts and that kind of stuck and got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Wow. And so I, I still didn't quite know what I wanted to do. But I come from a, a background of uh, some trauma. Uh, my dad left my family when I was two. It was, there were five of us. Oh, wow. And our middle style or middle class lifestyle became inner city poverty overnight. And my oldest sibling and only brother, my hero, he was murdered when I was 11. No. So, you know, I had a lot of stuff that I was carrying. and had teachers, my grandparents, uncles and aunts that really kind of helped me process all that stuff. But when I went to college and found out that, you know, I could really major in anything and learn about anything, and I've always loved to learn, I started 
studying psychology and started asking myself questions about, wow, you know, why did I behave this way? Or why do people feel this way? And I connected with my professors and they would tell me things like, well, majoring in, as an undergrad in psychology, you know, it's not really what it's about. You, if you're really interested in this, you're going to have to go on. So I was interested in it and got a master's degree and then went on and got a doctorate. Wow, it's great. Now, were you the first in your college or sorry, first in your family to be able to go to a university and pursue this or had others forged the path for you? No, I was actually the first in my family of five to actually graduate high school. Oh, wow. And, and college, you know, <laughs> I, I oftenly joke to say that my school counselor, when she told me that I could go to the College of William & Mary, which is considered the oldest college in our nation, mm-hmm. I said to her, how can one person go to two colleges at one time? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that was definitely not necessarily in my trajectory, but at the same time, I had people around me to let me know that it was a possibility. So it was a great experience. And of our eight children, uh, seven are uh, in college or graduated from college. The 18-year-old is about to go to college. Wow. That must be a very proud moment for you. Oh, definitely. My youngest sister, um, I kind (laughs) of say I paved the way for her Mm -hmm. about – Three months ago, she became a judge here in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Whoa. That's amazing. Congratulations. Exactly. So we're proponents of education and giving back. Well, Christine over here is is on the same track too, aren't you, babe? (laughs) I am. Yeah. I'm relating to your story a lot about um, forging ahead and um, being the first. So I was the first in my family to go directly to a four-year university from high school and you know, my sisters were in college. They went to community college because it's the path that we knew. Um, but yeah, definitely. I'm walking through that path in the last semester of my doctorate right now. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank and you. I'm cheering for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you went, you got your master's degree and you earned your doctorate. And then what happened after that? <laughs> well, let, let's... Uh skip away a bit from the highlight reel and let's talk about some of that uncut footage in the process. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My sophomore year in college, my now wife and I had a son. Oh, wow. So I became a father uh, as a sophomore. She was a freshman. So it was at that point that I actually started working in the field of psychology. So oftentimes people ask me, how was I able to get tenure at such a young age at the university and all the type of positions that I had. Well, I kind of had to start early. So I worked at a hospital, a psychiatric hospital, and my shift was from 11 p.m. at night to 7 in the morning. Graveyard. And then I went to class. Exactly, exactly. But I was fortunate to have some really good people that I worked with that when all of my work was done, I was able to study. Oh, wow, yeah. So, so um, fast forward after, after that. Um, I worked when I graduated. I got a promotion at the hospital, which actually um, I got into substance abuse and or substance use treatment. And okay, I, I was going to ask you <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, no, we skipped no, something no, here. No, 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 no. You know what? I've never used substances, but I, I tell you what. Uh, I told someone recently that my 18-year-old he wants to be an attorney. Mm-hmm. So I told him that uh, the only issues I have right now are the fact that I think he's going to major in uh, law 
and cannabis. <laughs> okay. Put those two together, huh? <laughs> so, so, but, uh, so yeah, so I graduated, got, became a substance abuse counselor uh, in the master's program. So I constantly worked throughout. And as a result of working throughout, when I finally decided what I wanted to do, it wasn't one of these things where I came in with no experience. I had tons of experience. Uh, as an undergrad, I taught for my professors. As In my master's, I was a grad assistant. And right before graduating with my master's, the College of Women Mary had, uh, hired me as an adjunct professor. Oh, wow. So a lot of the stuff was fast tracked. It wasn't something that I ever thought I would do. It, um, it wasn't on my bucket list. I tell people it was on my luck list. <laughs> <laughs> there you so, go. But, uh, but yeah, very um, proud of the way things turned out, happy about that, and try to help others do the same thing. That's fantastic. And you mentioned when we first started chatting that within your being a clinical psychologist, you tour the world. Uh, speaking. So what are some of the things that people seek you out for in terms of your expertise? Well, it, it really depends on the audience. If it's an adult audience, it's usually things surrounding uh, servant leadership, uh, trauma, and how to be trauma-informed or work with individuals who have been traumatized. And the, the spectrum can go from there to challenging implicit biases. Um for a lot of corporations that invite me, it's about uh, learning to appreciate diversity. Mm-hmm. So many of those things, I, I do quite a bit with law enforcement with regards to uh, sensitivity training. So it, it, it kind of the topics will vary based on the audience. With young people, it's usually about protective factors and risk factors, mm-hmm. helping them understand that you can make choices, but the choices will eventually make you. That's awesome. Now, if something that you were mentioning um, that you speak about trauma-informed practices, I'm, I work in education and Chris and I talk a lot about trauma and past traumas in our own background and how it impacts how we interact together. And we know that schools are doing a lot around trying to work with students of trauma, but what's at the center of that work? Like, What does a person need to embody to be able to do the work of being trauma responsive? Well, I tell you that, you know, we got a big push in education now that people are saying, what is your why? Everybody wants to discover their why. However, I tell people the I has to be before the why. So when they talk about trauma in education, they're talking about secondary trauma. And that's the trauma that teachers experience from the challenging students they work with. Mm-hmm. However, it's important that teachers recognize that they also carry trauma. Trauma does not discriminate. So we as educators have to unpack our own baggage because who we are, in my opinion, is more important than what we teach. Because mm-hmm. wherever you are, that's where you're going to be. That's You're, you're going to be there. So I think many educators haven't necessarily looked in their own backpack, so to speak. And when I help them in this regard, I remind them that Personal storms are a part of life, but adults have to do a better job of not getting their students wet. Oh, that's a good point. Interesting. So with that, um, have you found it challenging to get leaders and teachers to understand what it feels like to be a student in their classroom? Yes. I, I remind them that they were all one students. 
and I come at it from a com- I guess compassion fatigue situation whereby mm-hmm. it's different from burnout burnout kind of doing the same monotonous things over and over but compassion fatigue is when you love what you are doing so much that you really don't reserve anything for yourself mm-hmm. so one of the first questions I ask teachers or even my students at the university who want to become educators, I would say, if you wrote a list of all the things you loved, how long would it take you to add your name to that list? Well, if you're Chris, <laughs> you'd be number one. <laughs> I ask what? him, I say, do you love me the most? Am I your favorite person? And what's your response, Chris? Now you threw me under the bus here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good thing. When I ask you who your favorite person is, what's your response? You? No, what's your what's your response? Might me? Yes. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's, right. what, that's, gr- that's great. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> great. Well, I, I look at it like this. If you're on an airplane, it's going down. They always tell you to put the mask on you first before anybody else. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And 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 I guess uh, from a clinical psychologist's perspective, Chris, it would mean that uh, you don't show symptoms of codependency. Oh, well... <laughs> Not really. In this relationship, no. But uh, we've been <laughs> we've been working through those things ourselves. It's each of us hand- tending to our own lawn. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but I think that that's a really valid point. Something that we've talked about is um, how codependent habits can come up as a coping mechanism to trauma that you're continuously enduring. And um, for Chris and I, both coming out of previous fractured relationships and marriages, how when things are volatile, sometimes you just learn how to manage it out of a survival instinct. Definitely. We go back to old habits often. Right. And so uh, one of the things that I was reading about you and as I was researching you, I know, cyber stalking, (laughs) is that you do work around something that you refer to as the empathy gap. Is that correct? That's correct. That actually came out of my research almost 30 years ago on African-American males' perception of law enforcement, some of the very things that we're experiencing in society today. And that empathy gap was actually what existed between those two entities, whereby there wasn't a bridge of understanding or connection. So the longer that there was that gap, there was ten, there, there tended to be isolation of the two. There tended to be hostility, animosity, resentment. So that empathy gap became critical in my study to bridge that divide. So how do you define empathy? Well, from a derivative level, well, everybody thinks of empathy as being able to put on someone else's shoes. It's so much more than that. Empathy would mean if I if I told you and Chris that I became a father before I was a man, mm-hmm. and that was tr- that was troubling to me. An empathic response would be the two of you would look deeply within yourself after having listened intently to me. You would look deeply in yourself to try to find feelings that are akin to what I'm expressing, whether it's sadness, whether it's. Uh, hopelessness, you would look to find those experiences within yourself. And once you were able to actually connect with that feeling within yourself, that in of itself would help you understand me and what I'm going through better. And then we can work on a solution from there. Wow. That's good. 
It's good stuff, man. Did you have a question, Chris? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> He's like thinking. We're processing what no. you're saying. <laughs> yeah. What I was going to say was also, I don't know what it's like out there, but in California here, you probably have known that we have a big homeless population increasing. And I yes. feel like a lot of the empathy you're talking about can relate with the homeless situation because I run into these guys all the time and, and you feel like, like you feel kind of helpless on on what you can do and a lot of them do uh, i mean sadly they do turn to drugs and alcohol and and they go down that path but um but yeah yeah and, and you know oftentimes chris what happens we look at empathy from an outward perspective so if we were to look at a homeless person we would immediately say you know what is it like to be homeless but from an inward perspective it, it would be exactly what you just said it would be like hopelessness helplessness how would that per- how does that person feel uh not being able to have what most americans want safety and security so empathy is 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 so much more and and that empathy gap is about connections and if i may just kind of tell you a quick study in sure. just a couple seconds to, uh, when you talk about alcohol and drug abuse there was a study, and it was actually called uh, the Rat Park. And what and the rats were used in the study because the rat brain is most uh, similar to the human brain. Okay. So what they did, they noticed that if you put a rat in a cage by himself and gave him two water bottles, one with just plain water and another that was either filled with heroin or cocaine, that when the rat was alone, the rat would drink from the cocaine and heroin bottle to such an extent that it would become addicted and eventually kill itself from oh, wow. overdose. But if you stuck rats in a cage together with apparatus that were very similar to what we would put in a hamster's cage or a mm-hmm. gerbil's cage, they did that with the same two bottles, a, a water bottle and a bottle that was filled with cocaine or heroin. What they found was that the rats did not prefer the drugs. Oh wow. That, and really? they also found they also found that when a rat did drink from the drug bottle, that it did intermittently and it didn't do it to get addicted. So one of the things that comes out of this study is that most of us think that the uh that the opposite of addiction is abstinence. When in fact the opposite of addiction is human connections. Mm. Really? That's very interesting. I'm thinking about that and like it it really makes a lot of sense. And I just, yeah, I'm just walking through my head of um, people that I I know that have fallen into addiction and it really does come in a time of isolation and loneliness when they feel um, hopeless, like you're saying. I, I never even thought about connecting addiction with hopelessness and that hopelessness could have been the precursor to taking use of substances. Certainly. So I wanted to walk back just a couple of steps as you were talking a a few minutes ago when I asked you about empathy and you mentioned um, about empathy related to um, a police officer and a black man that might be having an interaction. And what I was wondering is if that digging deep um, into yourself to try and connect with another person, if you can't find similar feelings to empathize, what happens? 
Wow, that's an excellent question. If you can't find those similar feelings, then that distance, that that bridge continues to exist. The problem with that is the bridge doesn't stay the same. The brain is at work, and the, the brain actually will make decisions for us long before we actually think we actively do it, and mm-hmm. the, the gap actually widens. So I, I would really wish that we taught neuroscience, just parts of neuroscience in public education, private settings, that any orientation that you would have for a job, you would just understand, people would understand that the brain doesn't help us to think. Right. The brain was actually, you know, it helps us to make quick decisions and it helps us to be efficient. So, you know, I tell people all the time, don't believe everything you think. So, the, you know, and that bias, when I talk about bias, mm-hmm. that's just basically the brain teaching us without our permission, but then the brain doesn't like to be wrong. So if you've ever had a debate with someone and it doesn't seem like they're understanding anything you're saying, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's because the brain is actually looking for confirmation bias. It's looking for evidence and what you're saying that already supports what they think they know. So it really so to to, to be get beyond that you got to be purposeful you got to be intentional and you got to be present. So this whole conversation is like inter interconnected because it's difficult to be present when you have trauma and you're carrying baggage. It's difficult to close the empathy gap uh, when you don't know neuroscience. All so right. It's, so it's 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 circular, but it's all about learning and critical thinking. And you know I think. With, with regards to critical thinking, if my definition is being able to separate your emotions from your thinking, and I don't believe I've watched a television um, newscast in the last year where I've seen that. Oh, really? Wow. Um, so, Doc, um, I was asked what what do you think about we, we had recent in recent terms with the um, attack on the Capitol and, and riots and things like that. People are very, very emotionally attached to their beliefs, whether, I mean, almost, it, it's, it's almost, I wouldn't say the word brainwashed a little bit, but there's kind of like this thing where people kind of get sucked into whatever, you know, they're just going to go all out on whatever they believe, whether, I mean, whether they, whether they're told or not, you know, and, and they're just get crazy, you know? Oh, yeah, I I agree. I think from a trauma perspective, so say you have people that are just carrying the weight of the world. Now, you have some that have coping strategies and capacities that they can deal with, whatever it is. But then you have some that is just the ticking time bomb. And, you know, when we don't address our rejections, they become projections on the other people. So hate is strangely seductive. History has proven it. So if I'm carrying just the angst and irritation, it's not necessarily that I'm committed to your cause. It's almost like your cause can be a catharsis for me. And if you look at zealots from all stripes, if you would sit someone down and they're really passionate, the majority of those people, if you were to say, hey, tell me about if, it, if they're passionate about President Biden, tell me about his policies. You know, sometimes they may right. not be able to do. They may not be able not. to do that. You know, uh, if you there was, if our former president Trump, you know, if they, oh, we have to have him. He he he's the best. You say, tell me about his policies. Which policies do you support? Right, right. <laughs> Oftentimes they can't tell you, and what happens is is that 
it's a, it would be called adaptive catharsis if it were positive, but it's maladaptive to the point that they're finding things to uh, to allow things that they're going through personally as an outlet to become their outlet. And it, there, there's some other factors involved in this. Um, when you have leaders, and this could be shown from a leader, if we want to call him that, Hitler. Right. When you're telling people that, these people, this group of people, they're the reason you don't have X, Y, Z. They're the reason for everything that you're going through, your hurt, your trauma, your family, your, your economic disparity. They are, these are the people. So when you do that and you, know, you tell people in, in Hitler's situation, he was telling them people that they were, he was winning the war, that they don't have anything to worry about. In fact, mm-hmm. they were losing, that the casualties were in the millions. And then when they actually lost the war, the sheep, so to speak, that were following, they came up with conspiracy theories. Because mm. how is it possible that we were winning all along and then at this last turn, we don't win? So there's a whole bunch at stake. But I think one of the things that we overlook is that usually the people who are engaged in violent, antisocial types of acts, it's it's usually some some personal things that are contributing to it. You know, I, I've heard people talk about President Trump and, and MAGA, but I tell people that MAGA wasn't a four-year term. That That's actually interwoven in the fabric of our nation. So whatever it is that we think that President Trump contributed to, it, it would be more of the same, that the, the conditions were already here. He, yes, he may have lit a fire or um, added fuel to a, you know, a smoldering fire, but mm-hmm. the conditions were already present. Yeah. So you made a comment and it's circling in my head and I've never thought about it as this. And I think I'm going to quote you. So watch for it and get tagged on Instagram. But you said, <laughs> you said, hate is strangely seductive. And I think about the time that we're at in our environment right now when in the midst of COVID and job losses and financial instability and political turmoil and people feeling completely out of control in so many areas of their life. I know when I feel out of control, I get angsty, I get edgy. And then, you know, whatever happens, I pick that up as my my coping mechanism. And it, it seems almost like from listening to you that to a certain extent, not to stereotype, but People that are struggling right now and don't necessarily have coping mechanisms or haven't dealt with past trauma can weaponize hate, and that becomes their way to cope through what's really hard and uncontrollable. Dr. Christine, you're spot on. (laughs) Yay! There you go. (laughs) All right. It's official now, everybody. (laughs) I was I was just thinking about that and you know personally reflecting on this you know you can put your psychologist hat on if you want to but I really have been thinking about as I've struggled and and I'm going to own my own stuff I've been very edgy with Chris the last few weeks What? No. <laughs> but it it's come in the wake of my recovery from a really difficult battle with COVID when I felt out of control where for a time there we were really worried like Am I going to make it through when I was hospitalized? And I think after it, I got edgy and I didn't have, it was traumatic and I hadn't processed through that trauma. So I picked up frustration and anger 
and I didn't know how to put it down. And Chris has helped me work through that as as my therapist, which I'm grateful for that. But there's so many people that don't have that right now. Yeah. And that's such a wonderful um, illustration of how we can have traumatic things happen to us, but then lean on one another. You know, it's, it's really important in couples that oftentimes when they're stressed, couples distance, <laughs> you know, they want to deal oh, with it alone. Yeah. yeah. When the opposite is actually needed to get through it. And not necessarily my psychologist hat these days, just my, my family hat, you know, as human beings, we all want to predict and control. And when we can't, there's angst. And that's pretty much everyone. Um, however, my wife went in for a routine mammogram about a month ago and was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no. And um, totally treatable and curable. However, you know, here we're going through COVID and, and, and so many other things. And this comes along. And one of the very first things that she said, she said, I want to get in front of this as much as I can. And I didn't understand what, you know, she was saying because we both were had tears in our eyes when um, we got, you know, she got the diagnosis. Right. But after that, I mean, she just started researching. I started researching with her and understanding cancer and tumors and, and other things. And one of the things that, like uh, Christine said, we, we had to actually come together because what was happening, she's had her first round of chemotherapy. And the side effects are like really, really uh, something to deal with. Right. I bet. Yeah. Wow. So she doesn't necessarily, she wants to kind of deal with it and go through it. And everybody else wants to be there for her. So we had, a, you know, a meeting and we said, hey, how best can we help you? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, not allowing anything to chance. That communication is paramount. Nothing happens without communication. Yeah, it makes me think about this um, Brene Brown video that I've watched, and it's about um, empathy and getting into the pit with someone instead of like standing up above and being like, okay, get through your chemo treatment and we'll be here waiting for you. It's like getting down to that person's level and saying, how can I help you Definitely. lift back up and what do you need to get back up this ladder? Exactly. When, when Brene talks about it, she talks about the person actually going down in the pit with the person. And actually standing there with them and, and being, like I said, in the dark, being present, but also listening, but then looking inside of themselves. You know, the person that kind of peeks down in the pit and doesn't, uh, you know, that's sympathy. Right. <laughs> you know, there's no oh, solution. So what's the difference between sympathy and empathy then? Well, sympathy is still a, a certain amount of compassion, but sympathy doesn't offer solutions. And I think where our, where we are sometimes in our nation is that we're actually walking past the pit, hearing voices, hearing people screaming, and not even looking in. So I think we're at a point of apathy. Okay. And and do you think that's because of like what you were talking about earlier, where there's like compassion fatigue, where people have been putting out so much energy to like and dealing with so much in the media with deaths and loss, and that it's almost like they're numb to it. Yes, I, I definitely think that. I think that just not the media, you know, just because there's COVID, you know, it didn't stop those forest fires out in the on the West Coast. 
it, right. it didn't stop the, the storms that were coming on, coming, you know. So life continues to happen. And then on top of all of that, for some, the last four years was unpredictable because sometimes you might have a leader send tweets that people didn't understand necessarily and or laws that people didn't understand and didn't appreciate. So it's, you know, we say the United States of America, but I think the last four years could have easily been the United States of anxiety. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to get a t-shirt made like that. So, Doc, how do people remain positive going into 2021? That's an excellent question. Um, I often let people know that I'm able to get on this podcast with you today and give you everything I have, but that's not necessarily happiness. Happiness is based on people, places, things, or events. So, you know, when people are tweeting, happiness is an inside job. As a clinical psychologist, I'm thinking, no, joy is the inside job. Joy is being comfortable with who you are, what you are, and how you are. So in essence, I would say happiness says because of, joy says in spite of. So we have to be careful when we say, you know, how do people stay positive? Because there's this trend now on toxic positivity where people are, they're saying people are ignoring the present and just being happy, happy, joy, joy. That's not what I'm saying at any means. I'm saying that whatever it is that you're going through, go through it, feel it. You know, you, you can't heal what you don't reveal. So go through it. You know, and let be, be, surround yourself with people who will tell you, you know, get up, don't tell you, you know, get over it, but more or less, I'll help you through it. So it's all about who you surround yourself with. It's all about perspective, but it's also all about being human and understanding that at any point in time, we're all going through a storm, coming out of a storm, or about to go in a storm. And that's just life. So, Doc, how can a person tell whether they're being happy on the surface or whether they are joyful? Because I think that there can be a certain amount of fake it till you make it. Are you you talking about like the Instagram uh, post where people just post like their their family, how everything's happy? Right, right. But I think even like, I don't know, I think about people that I see walking through their daily life and not to be negative, but there's there are a lot of people that their tone is more aligned with Eeyore versus Pooh. And um, so like the, like the humdrums and we don't want to tell them like cheer up because we don't want to invalidate what they're going through. But I guess my question is how do you cultivate joy in the midst of so much uncertainty? Well, one of the things is actually sitting down and understanding and knowing, acknowledging what's important to you. And for me, my family and my clients, I would always say what, you know, always know the three most important things to you in life and keep those on your frontal lobe at all times. So when you know what's important to you, for me, it's my faith, my family and fun. Those three things are extremely important to me. And three F's. (laughs) Exactly. So um, in knowing that when things come my way, I mean, you know, my wife was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. Guess what? She's still here and I'm still able to love on her. Right. So so that's perspective. When it comes to what's going on around us, you know, I still have my family and, and, and you know, they have me. And then fun is just, it, I just think it's, <laughs> we shouldn't go through a day in life, in my opinion, without some type of laughter, smiling or fun. I think life's too fragile not to. 
Yeah, that's a really great point. I know it's easy to just get caught up in the heaviness. I know that I'm guilty of that. And so, Chris, how about uh, we bring a little bit more fun? I'm all for that. You know, I always bring the fun. We talk about <laughs> you do. He's my. He's definitely my comic relief. <laughs> well, you know, Thanks, and, and, you. And, and, and it doesn't mean you can't cry. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, wallow in sorrow. What it means is you can't stay there. Right. And my wife, if she was on this podcast, she'd tell you that every single day I play a love song, one of her favorites, and we dance. What? I didn't do that. Before. I didn't. I didn't Seriously, do that make before. Me cry. <laughs> but but I didn't do that before her diagnosis. Mm. But I said, in this storm, in the storm, in this journey, you know, there will be some silver lining, mm-hmm. and we will make it a silver lining. And I can tell you, do I always feel like uh, I was rushing the other day, and I was just like, oh, I got to play the song, I got to play the song. So she was in bed. So I thought I was going to get away from just, I get away with just playing the song, and she'd listen and hear it. She got up out of bed, came to the closet. I was getting dressed. <laughs> and we danced. We danced. Aww. I danced half dressed. So, <laughs> I, you know, and, and that's not toxic positivity. I'm acknowledging, uh, you know, we could have been dancing and she could have had a cramp from a side effect. She was running the other day and had a cramp and almost mm-hmm. fell. So, you know, in the midst of your joy, <laughs> life will happen. And you let it happen. You let it happen. You experience it and you get through it. You just don't stay there. Yeah, that's really powerful. You, I've, as you're talking about dancing with your wife in the closet, it made me reflect on when I was going through my really rough time about a week and a half ago. And um, Chris and I were here, you know, getting ready to shut everything down. And I just sat on the bed and was just kind of pouring my heart out about feeling overwhelmed and anxious and out of control. And I just remember, like, I didn't know how he was going to receive it because he's always a very uh, supportive person, but. Um, he just wrapped his arms around me and he said, whatever you need, uh, I'm going to be here. I might not always know the right thing to say or do, but if you like help tell me, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to walk through it with you. And I will say that that moment has stood out to me when I've gone through some little rough patches over the last week or so, because it was like in my lowest point that he, uh, was able to say, that he didn't have to be control in control and fix the situation, but he was going to love me well through it. And I think that in the midst of everything everybody's going through right now, that's a message that yes. I would hope that everybody can grab hold of. Yes, but for Chris to do that, there has to be a certain level of uh, reflection and and authenticity within himself to actually. I mean, I th- I think that's incredible what he did. Thank I just you. Wish more, Thank you. More men or more people would be able to do that. But the, again, there has to be a certain comfort level in that individual with right. themselves to extend themselves and even acknowledge that I might not be able to fix it. But whatever it is you need, I'm here. I, I just think that's awesome. I, hey guys, I look forward to the book someday. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I did have one question about one more about empathy for you. Do you? Th- do you find in your professional background, and not again, not to stereotype, that it's a little bit more challenging for men to demonstrate empathy because of the need to be strong, macho, protector, provider? Certainly. Certainly. When one of the things in uh, couples counseling is explaining the difference uh, to couples off the bat, particularly with uh, opposite sex marriages whereby sometimes women 
and every couple's book would say this, women want attention. If it, if it boils down to one thing, women need attention, want attention. On the other yeah, hand, we do. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, men, if everything boils down to, men want to feel needed. So when a man doesn't feel like he can fix something or, you know, he's important in a situation, it, it almost invalidates his manhood, so to speak. So yeah. Exactly. So what we want to encourage men to do, as opposed to just being protectors and providers, we want men to be nurturers. Mm. That it's, it's okay to hold your wife. It's okay to cry with your wife. It's okay to hold hands. As basic as these things sound, I can't tell you how many times that they're addressed in therapy sessions. Really? Is it because of the, I think it was like a year or two ago, the phrase toxic masculinity was like coming out really prominent. Do you think that it's just society's kind of poisoned our view of what it means to be a successful man in a relationship? I think so. I think uh, society, I think if you look at the, the shows and various things that, that we watch, you know, there's really subtle messages and everything. I watched something the other night on how social media does that and concerned me. But even with couples, when, when have you seen a commercial with a child where couples are actually like frowning on changing a pamper or right. upset, uh, upset because the child has uh, awakened in the middle of the night, won't go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always Hallmark, you know, Hallmark-ish. Right. Yeah, Christine to- will tell you all about that. She loves, she loves that Hallmark <laughs> stuff. She's a sucker for all the Hallmark stuff. Put me under the bus, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so, so th- that paints a picture for everyone. So people take it and they, and they run with it. And much of it comes from what our fathers and their fathers were taught. And, you know, going out killing the bear was the operational definition of being a man for many. Right. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go to work. I'm going to put food on this table. Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Right. There's so much more uh, to being a man. And I constantly tell men that some of the hardest things define us most, mostly like um, asking for help. <laughs> right. Being able to say, hey, I need help. I can't do this alone. How many men, if we surveyed right now, would say that I've ever asked for help? Right. Because many men see that as a weakness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, society has to do better. But um, I, I really do think that couples can reinforce one another because there may be things you want from Chris that he's not providing. And, and, and he's read every book under the sun on <laughs> what it means to be a great husband, or a great man. Mm-hmm. But still, everybody is a study of one. Right. So regardless of what research we cite, Every person is a study of one. So that, that actually what that's what makes uh, or can make human interaction so challenging. Well, this has been super insightful and we we appreciate your time so much. You've given us a lot to process and think about. But is there one nugget of truth that you would like to leave with our listeners as we wrap out our interview together? Yes. I, I think I would like to say that Oftentimes, it's difficult to fully understand something unless you've been through it, but the experience of it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Mm, That's deep. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Well, Doc Brown, where can our listeners find you to learn more about your work um, as a clinical psychologist and a social justice advocate? Uh, They can find me at my website at docspeaks.com or my Instagram uh, at Adolf. And that's uh, A-D-O-L-P as in Papa, H as in Hotel, Brown, or Twitter uh, at DocSpeaks. Fantastic. That's great. Awesome. Well, we so appreciate your time. And I'm going to be listening to this episode over and over again, as I think it's given me a lot to think about and act upon as we enter into 2021. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. I appreciate being here. Thanks, Doc. The Podbreed Network is strictly for the small podcasts that are up and coming in the vast world of podcasting. Podbreed is made up of many diverse podcasts coming together to achieve the same goal of being the best damn podcast network on the planet. Find out more at podbreed.com. Well, that was a super fascinating interview. Oh, Dr. Adolph is great. I really loved Doc Brown and hearing about his background. And I think that even the conversation around empathy and the empathy gap was really enlightening to me. It very much so is because you think about it, so many people are struggling right now. And, and how do you how do you help out without physically like doing a handout, you know? Right. And I think about like, I reflect on myself and going through hard things. Sometimes I really want empathy from people when I'm going through hard things. But it's sometimes it's hard to turn that around and offer it to others when they're struggling. And so I think it reminds me of it's really important to like slow down and to just be present with people and to be just very honest and open. And I would like to think that I've been growing in my empathy as the pandemic has continued on. What, what do you think about me, babe? Do you think I'm very uh, – do you think I have empathy or do think I'm working on it um, or, or to work in progress? I think it's a work in progress. You know, we've had conversations about this where – I'm telling you that I'm struggling with something and your approach to empathy is to immediately connect it with something you've done, but then you kind of dominate the conversation. So for example, whatever. (laughs) So for example, if I was to say to you, honey, I've had a really rough day at work. Your response would be, I had a rougher day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you're like, wow. um, Yeah, I had a rougher day and this is what happened. And my day's been really crummy. And I'm like, okay, honey, what I've been trying to learn to do is to like pause you and say, okay, I get that you're trying to connect with me, but I want you to hear me. But I like to share because I, I give it. I come from a place of like relatability, right? And that's I think where it kind of gets a little bit messy with empathy. Is sometimes that person wants you to feel with them and not just take over. I call it hijacking the conversation. Oh, really? <laughs> I've told you that before, huh? Uh, yeah. You always tell me. Wait till I finish. Can I finish finish your sentence? Can I finish my sentence? That's your favorite line to say. Yeah, and that's so funny because when I was having my bridal shower, uh, they asked you all these questions like, what is um, asking you, Chris, Chris, what's Christine's most used phrase? And it was something like, um, can I finish my sentence, please? (laughs) Right. That was exactly what I answered. And um, it was correct. So I, I win. But that's what we've been learning how to navigate is we've been in this relationship is when you have been single for so long, you just figure out how to take care of yourself and how to like fly solo and to take care of your kids by yourself. And and this relationship is teaching us how to like put ourselves in the other person's shoes and to really slow down. And I would say you've actually made a whole lot of growth and I am working on showing more empathy when you're sick or when you're just feeling really down because I'm just so used to you being the get her done kind of guy 
that it's hard for me to acknowledge that you're human sometimes. Yeah, you know, only so many things I can do. You know, I'm uh, my superpowers are uh, do it all, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't do everything. I guess right. I try. I try though. And I think that when people show empathy to one another, it makes it easier to ask for help, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, when somebody's like, "Hey, I'm really sorry you're going through this. I remember when I was at a really low time." I was looking for help. Is there something I could do to help that, you? you know, that's kind of what I do a little bit. I try to be very relatable, you know, yeah. with people. I try, try to, you know, because we all have had experiences. We all have had problems. We've all gone through bad things. And I think that, I think for me personally, is I try, I try to be very relatable to to whoever's situation they're going through, whatever it could be. And I know people are going through a lot right now with the whole COVID and and uncertainty with the, right. their careers, their jobs. People are losing houses and especially the homeless problem. It's really increasing here in San right. Diego and, uh, and things like that. But I sometimes I feel so helpless. Like like what I can't. I mean, I think a lot of people I've run into they'll want they'll want money or they'll want things like that. But that's like, do you want money or do you want help? It, it's, right. It seems like is money going to really help you or is it just going to get you your next fix? Right. Because enablement and empathy are two very different things. Like you don't want to enable somebody to stay in a negative pattern. And so, like, how do you show empathy and be present with them and support them without just allowing people to stay in a negative cycle? And I think it's a very thin line between those two. And so I would just say that, um, like you asked how you're doing with empathy and you said work in progress. I'm definitely a work in progress. And I think as long as we both understand that we are works in progress, it'll help to keep us humble in our relationship enough to try and be authentic with each other. Right. Amen, sister. I love it. That's that's (laughs) great. And um, anything else, babe? No, no. I just I'm going to listen to this interview over and over again because I think Doc Brown had some really great thought nuggets for us. And I think that other people are going to get a lot out of it, too. That's great. Thanks, Doc, for showing up on the show today. We really appreciate having you on here. And if you want to have more about us and our show, you can go to www.chrisandchristineshow.com. And that is Chris and Christine with the letter K. The link will be in the description notes uh, on this podcast. Yep. And you'll also be able to find anything about Doc Brown in the show notes, too. And so thank you so much for listening. And we will have you all back here next week. Remember this week that life is too short to wake up in the morning with regret. So love the people who treat you right, forget about the ones who don't, and believe that everything happens for a reason. If you get a chance, take it. If it changes your life, let it. Nobody said that it would be easy. They just promised it would be worth it. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Chris. And I'm Christine. And until next week, keep moving forward.